Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we're talking about the miracle of making a first film. This is the first in a series of satellite sessions conversations we're bringing to you in partnership with Anti-Gravity Academy and the Coalition of Asian Pacifics in Entertainment. This is a conversation hosted recently as a live webinar by our great friend and former Dolby Institute Fellowship winner, Carlos Lopez Estrada, the Academy Award-nominated director of Blind Spotting, Raya and the Last Dragon, and Summertime. He's joined in conversation by Sean Hader, the Academy Award-winning writer and director of CODA, Rinaldo Marcus Green, the director of King Richard, Nikiatu Jusu, who also received the Dolby Institute Fellowship Award for her debut feature film, Nanny, Diana Paragas, the director of Yellow Rose, and Randall Park, whose debut film, Shortcomings, is actually in theaters right now. This is an incredible conversation with an extraordinary group of filmmakers, all organized around the topic of the miracle of getting that first movie made. We are extremely proud to bring this conversation to you. I guarantee you, you will learn a lot from it and get inspired. Take it away, Carlos. Thank you everyone for showing up to our second session, The Miracle of Making a First Film. And thank you, Cape, for co-presenting this with us. My name is Carlos Lopez Estrada. I'm a filmmaker, the founder of Anti-Gravity Academy. We are a production company that we established last year, really with the main focus of supporting emerging filmmakers in film and TV and beyond. After hosting this conversation, we're going to be doing, we're going to start doing this monthly and we have like really, really good lineups coming up. So please stay connected, follow us on Instagram, all that good stuff. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about these satellite sessions, what these really are monthly free conversations with incredible, exciting figures from the film and TV universe. Our last panel last month featured five agents and managers speaking about finding representation as an emerging filmmaker. And our July panel next month will feature five producers who have built careers out of supporting first-time feature directors. So please stay connected. Make sure you tell your friends about it. Uh, the last thing I said is, I'll say is that the Dolby Institute has very graciously agreed to host our panels so they can live beyond these live sessions. So you will soon find them on the Dolby Institute podcast as well as on the YouTube channels. We're here to talk to five incredible filmmakers and this is because the making of a first feature is really nothing short of a miraculous feat. There's just so many elements that need to perfectly align at the right time in order for an emerging filmmaker to get a shot or telling their story. And we're hoping that by having these very earnest conversations about what it took and what it felt to make a first feature by these directors, we can shed a little bit of light into um, a process that, you know, is like so, so, so mysterious to so many emerging filmmakers. So please help me in welcoming our five panelists. We'll start with Sean Hader. She's an Academy Award winning and BAFTA winning writer and director. Her first film, Tallulah, starts Elliot Page and premiered at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. Her most recent film, Coda, won Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay at the 2022 Oscars. She's also worked on some great TV shows, such as Orange is the New Black, Little America, and Glow. Thank you, Sean, for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Reynaldo Marcus Green, whose film King Richard earned 
six Academy Award nominations, including for Best Picture, and his first feature, Monsters and Men, was awarded Outstanding First Feature at Sundance 2018. He is currently in post-production of Paramount on Paramount's Bob Marley biopic. Uh, very excited about it right now. Thank you, Carlos. Hi, everybody. Nikiatu Jusu is a filmmaker whose debut feature, Nanny, premiered at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, where it received the Grand Jury Prize in U.S. Dramatic Competition category, making her the second Black female director to receive this honor. The movie was released by Amazon and Blumhouse. You can watch it. It's incredible. Please make sure you do. Next, we have Diane Paragas. Her first film, Yellow Rose, stars the incredible Tony-nominated Eva Noblezada and made history by being the first Filipino-American film distributed by a major Hollywood studio. She also directed an episode of the TV show Little America with uh, for Sean Hader over here as a showrunner. Thank you, Diane, so much for joining us. So excited to be here. And last but not least, we have Randall Park, who is an actor and a filmmaker who co-wrote, produced, and starred in Netflix, Always Be My Maybe. Randall's also known for his acting work in Fresh Off the Boat and the many films he has done for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He has a production company called Imminent Collision, which focuses on comedic stories from API perspectives. And his first feature film as a director, Shortcomings, premiered at Sundance this year, and it will be released in theaters on August 4th through Sony Pictures Classics. So please make sure you show up to see it on opening weekend. <laughs> um, Carla. Thank you all for joining. Um, and just so you all know, we're going to be talking for the next little bit. And at the end, we're going to be doing a Q&A. So if you have any questions that you would ask to ask, you would like to ask any of the panelists, please make sure you write it on the chat and we'll try to get to as many as possible at the end. As a director, sometimes you find a story and sometimes a story finds you. And I would like to go around and have you each answer which of this is true for you. And what about what about this particular story made you feel that this was it? like something inside of you that felt like this was the, the story to tell. Uh, so we can go, I'll just go in order here. Uh, Diane, can we start with you? Oh, <laughs> um, well, you were talking about emerging filmmakers. I was emerging for a very long time. I had the longest birth of like the history. It took me so long to make this movie, but the movie definitely was very close to me. Um, it's a story about a 50, uh, a teenage girl who um, longs to be a country singer until her mom gets deported by ice. And I grew up in Texas, in a small town in Texas, and I played music. I, I My family didn't experience the same thing, but I definitely experienced isolation and feeling like I didn't belong. And when I wrote the script and when it finally got made, years later, my mother actually told me that they had been in threat of deportation, but they kept it from us. And so that was revealed to me later on. But um, I didn't want to tell a straight biography of myself um, because I played punk music and I had a mohawk. That was my musical outlet. But I sort of flipped it around and tried to imagine if a, if, if a young girl loved Texas and didn't want to go to New York City like me and 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 understood it on a fundamental level on this musical level um and so it 
it was an interesting take on um, uh, unrequited love in the American dream. So um, it's very much my story, but it's also a fiction and a commentary on what was happening. And, you know, the script changed. It took me over 15 years to get it made. Um, but by the time it was made, we had Trump, we had the wall. And so I leaned much more heavily into that storyline. So it's a mixture of my own personal story and what was happening in the world around us. And it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Thank you. Uh, would anyone want to go next? Reynaldo? <laughs> sure, I'll go. I, I'm still emerging too, so don't, 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 uh, <laughs> you're not alone. Um, yeah, I think it's a combination. You know, I think it was in part like necessity for me. I had gone to film school. I had crazy debt. Uh, you know, I was just trying to figure out how to, how to make something, you know, with this degree that I had, <laughs> you know, and I, of course I had lots of stories and lots of stories I wanted to tell, but what was the one that just kept coming back to me and what, which one felt achievable. And I think I was constantly having that conversation with myself, but the reality of my life was also pushing certain elements. You know, I just gotten married. I had a son and it was like, well, how, like, what can I actually achieve on sort of my internal timeline in the like myriad of ideas that I have? And so like, I just by process of elimination started to like take out, you know, some of the grandiose ideas because I thought I was going to kind of put the rest of it, you know, put my first feature on my credit card and, and <laughs> I didn't know I was going to get financing. And I was, you know, in that crazy state of like, I'm going to do it no matter what. Like I had the $30,000 version and I had the $100,000 version, but somehow, you know, but I was doing all the paths. I was submitting to the Sundances and Tribeca's and every grant and lab you could possibly imagine. And I started getting into some of those programs, which was giving me a little bit of confidence and just a little bit of, a little bit of financial. So the idea that I ended up going with was, was a was a personal story because it it happened sort of in my hometown um, of Staten Island. It was sort of loosely based on on a real event that happened, a tragic event of Eric Garner. We probably know from Black Lives Matter, and he was selling loose cigarettes on the you know. And I used to deliver I used to deliver pizza in the neighborhood where he got killed, so I knew the building. I knew it was very personal that way. And so the characters in my film, it's a triptych. We're all loosely based on characters and people that I knew in my life. So I thought, okay, if I had to make this movie, I could, you know, get a friend, I could go to my barbershop and they'll, you know, give me the discount on the place. Like I had, I had this sort of like really cheap idea version of how I was going to make this movie. I didn't know about cast or any of that stuff. So I just, I guess it was a combination to answer your question of, you know, the story was also in part, what was practical in my life and what I thought I had a good chance to try to make, um, you know, within a certain window of time, you know, because all of these films, you know, a lot of films have a certain window. Um, and this was the window for my film. It was all about timing and, and, and just kind of moving it forward. So that that's kind of how my first film came together. Um, I'll go with Randall next. Um, for for shortcomings, uh, actually read the graphic novel when it came out back in two thousand seven, and uh, and at the time I was uh, fairly you know fairly new to my acting journey, uh, uh, and I remember reading this graphic novel and just being so blown away by it because it you know 
it was the kinds of like movies that I wanted to be in as an actor, you know, just kind of these very simple stories that take, you know, just walking and talking, people just kind of hanging out in diners and 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 just kind of very real life, authentic uh, uh, stories uh, that feature, happen to feature Asian Americans. But at the time it felt like such an impossible task because I was just starting out, you know, I, I didn't have any, any, uh, ability to make it happen and i don't think the industry was ready for to make a movie like that uh um but and 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 then over the years as i kept kind of you know slowly uh, building this acting career i just kept thinking about this graphic novel and i just kind of couldn't get it out of my head it got to the point where uh eventually i i kind of found more success as an actor and and started producing and, and directing some TV and and uh, and formed this production company and and thought, why don't we look into this graphic novel? Because I can't, I just have not stopped thinking about it since it came out. And, and uh, we found out that there was actually a, a script for it that was written by Adrian Tomina, who wrote the graphic novel. And, and, um, and it had been optioned and they were meeting with directors. And I was like, uh, I, I got it. I don't think I'm ready, but I'm going to I'm going to put together a pitch and 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 uh and see what happens and uh you know and, and I had been thinking about it for so long as a movie that I just kind of saw everything I had this very uh uh clear vision of of how I saw it and I put it all into the pitch and 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 somehow you know it all worked out and uh uh and yeah 15 years later we were in production which is like crazy 15 years wow yeah um, Diane also has a 15 year long story to tell. So yeah. well, we'll we'll dive into it momentarily. Uh, Nikki, I'll, I'll go over with you. I'm still sitting in my first feature, as you all know. And I I think that you're never ready. It's kind of like having a kid. So I hear because I don't have a kid for various reasons, namely making films. Um, but, you know, you're never really ready. And um this project took eight-ish years from conception to like having a draft, conceiving of the draft, conceiving of the story, but I stacked multiple stories. I didn't know which one would be the one that would stick. You throw a lot of shit at the wall, you know, if you're, you have the luxury of stacking ideas and, and you're not sure which one will get financed. And so I had, I was stacking ideas. Like I had ideas in different various, uh, iterations of the idea. And I, I thought my vampire project, surely the industry will not ignore a vampire project. Like this is going to be the first one out the gate. Um, but luckily I had other, other ideas, but for me, the catalyst in tipping over from stacking ideas to making an idea tangible was finding a producer, you know, finding Nikia Moteri to produce my first feature. She really kind of dragged me to the finish line of uh, of writing a draft and revising and revising and revising a draft that was financeable. And that's relative, that's subjective, that word, what does it mean to be financeable on the page? Um, I second guess myself a lot. I, I wasn't sure this was the idea. It's a personal story. I think what a lot of us share in common, a lot of first time feature film makers shares that that first idea out of the gate feels personal because you need to have something more than a desire to be in the industry to get you to that first feature. Like it has to be something that wakes you up in the middle of the night. It has to be something that 
you can't shake, that you can't forget. Um, and so nanny was that for me, but I want to make it clear that I second guess myself a lot. And so the eight-ish years was consumed by starting and stopping, like abandoning that momentarily, revisiting another project that I felt like, you know, was more mainstream. Um, and when I stopped writing to what I thought the industry wanted and writing towards what I really was passionate about, which is my mother's story and, and the women in my family's stories and women I admire stories, um, I think things started to piece together. So I think there's a spiritual component to my first feature. I'm very spiritual and, and the universe conspired. Once I understood that this was going to be my first feature, the universe kind of brought all the variables together for me. And you really feel it. I, I saw your movie again a couple of, of nights ago, and it doesn't happen to me often where I think a horror movie feels so, so, so intimate. Like it's really sort of like, thank you. It was very complex because I felt so emotional about it and also just like so horrified by uh, the, the story. And it, it was just a, a really complex thing to watch. And it was so beautiful. Thank you. Sean, can I pass it over to you? Yes. I also watched Nanny and loved it. And my first movie was came out of my experience as being a nanny, too. So that was sort of when I first moved out to L.A., um, I was super broke and I was driving like a five hundred dollar Buick um, and I was working like four different jobs and uh, bartending and waitressing. And I also worked as the babysitter for all of the really fancy hotels in L.A. Um, I didn't and, know that was a thing, by the way, until I saw your movie. Oh, yeah. No, I was like, a. by the way, in the movie, it's not that. But it, yes, it was like a service that hired me and I would get sent. I would get a call and it would be like, go to the Bel Air Hotel and, you know, and I would show up. And I think until I came to L.A., I had never encountered that kind of wealth and I'd never been in those spaces before ever. Like I never grew up going to hotels like that or had never ordered a $30 hamburger from room service. So it was like, suddenly I was in this really weird, you know, I'm showing up to watch these kids and I'm like, this is wild. Like the, what are you paying for this room? And what are you paying for me? And like, and I had a lot of really, really weird experiences. And one of the things that started to haunt me as I worked that job was there's a kind, there was a kind of neglect that I was witnessing um, in these really wealthy families. It was like, they, they were so, these parents were so insulated by all of their help that they sometimes seem to have no relationship with their child. They sometimes seem to like be so checked out in terms of like, even who I was walking in. Like it was sort of like I would arrive and I, I don't know why, if they thought that this service had background checked me or anything, like I could have been anybody basically. And I was walking into these rooms and there were times that I would be like watching a baby and the, the, the parent never even thought to tell me what the kid's name was. And so I was like, and all night would be like with some kid and I didn't even know their name. Okay. So I was having these very, very weird experiences. And then I had a very weird night one night with this woman who had come to the hotel to have an affair and she brought along her like one and a half year old and she hadn't brought the nanny because the husband paid the nanny and she thought that the nanny would rat her out. So she'd been, this was the first time she was alone with her kid. And were she, you told all of this or did you piece she it together? told me everything. This woman, like once I arrived, it was clear that she just wanted like somebody to, to 
like confess all of this to. Um, so I know I knew everything about her. Like she told me all this stuff and, and she was going out to meet this man and she was like hoping he would take her with him and she could leave her horrible marriage. And she had her kid, her kid wasn't wearing a diaper because she thought her kid should be potty trained at this point. This was a one-year-old. And I was like, Oh, for like your kid to, but like was so upset anyway. But there was something so heartbreaking about this woman because she was simultaneously so lost, so needy, so confused about what it was to be a mother. It was very tragic and also absurd and funny and whatever. She went out, she got wasted, came home so drunk. She passed out on the ground naked. Um, And I didn't know what to do with the kid. And I was like, what do I do? I have this like drunk woman in like the four seasons, you know, penthouse suite. And I didn't know how to leave this kid. Anyway, this is a long story. I'm going to try to <laughs> It's good. I had a very crazy night with this woman and I truly thought about stealing this kid. <laughs> I, I, I was like, as I was leaving, I was like, I cannot leave the kid. I tried to call the hotel concierge and they were like, you know, this woman's paying this much. You can call child services. Like we cannot intervene. And I was like, I'm in this woman's life for one night. I'm not going to call child CPS on her. And I left the kid in the room. I think I called up a crib and I left the kid in the crib and I left this like drunk woman and her baby in the penthouse of the four seasons. And I got in my shitty car and I cried the entire way home. And I was like, why is that woman a mother? Why wouldn't the hotel intervene? It was like, I was so tortured by it. And then I thought about why I didn't take the baby. And I was like, why didn't I just take that kid for the night? And I'm like, well, I would be worried about kidnapping charges or whatever I was worried about. And I was like, who would have taken that kid? And at the time I had a friend who was work, who was like living in her van, totally off the grid and living this very outsider. And you were like, that's I was like, Lisa would have taken that kid. Like she wouldn't have even bat an eye. She would have like put the kid in the van and taken off. So I wrote that scene the night I got home. I wrote it as a scene. I just like wrote down everything that happened in my night. And then I brought it into a group I was in at the time that was a group of actors and writers. And I read it out loud. And it was, I was sobbing as I wrote the scene. And then when I heard it read out loud, it was so hilariously funny and people were like dying laughing. And I was like, this is something, if this thing can be both, you know, the most tragic thing I've ever encountered. And yet now I'm in a room full of people and they're all laughing. There was just something there. Um, And so I ended up writing it kind of as a short film and applying to AFI making it um, through the directing workshop for women as a short. Um, And then it took me 10 years to make it into a feature. Um, And, you know, we're all in that boat. It's crazy. But I will say that the resistance teaches you that you believe in it because you would give up if you didn't, you know? So I think like, it's interesting once you start getting no's or once you start, and then you find yourself fighting for it, you, you know, you won't feel the story needs to be told. Otherwise you wouldn't push that rock up the hill. It would be too hard. So I think that time is a weird blessing because it sort of makes you dig into your story and know that you're fighting for it for a reason, even though it's infuriating when you're in it. I am so curious if the woman who inspired the short and then the feature ever got to see Tallulah. 
I have a secret dream that she did. I did have a woman who I used to babysit for who was not that woman call me up and be like, was that movie about me? Oh, no. <laughs> After she saw it. And I was like, no, no, it really wasn't about you. But apparently I hit a nerve with other people as well. Wow. Uh, some of you have answered this uh, in one way or another, but when the opportunity came to make this movie and all of a sudden it was like, okay, see a path forward, whether it took 15 or 10 years, did you feel like you were ready at the time? Did you feel like it came too early? Did you feel, I mean, probably after 15 years, I can't imagine you thought it came too late, but um, like, how did you feel underprepared or insecure? Like what the moment, there's a moment where it clicks and you're like, okay, I think this thing is actually going to happen. How prepared or not did you feel? Whoever wants to chime in. I'll chime in. I felt like it's about goddamn time that we had the money we needed to make the things that we want to make. And I say we because I had a tribe, like I had built up a a tribe, a community. Um, I went straight from undergrad to grad school, NYU grad film. I haven't taken a break. And so I was really hyper-focused on making, you know, communicating with the world. I have a compulsion to communicate. And so I was like, yeah, all we needed was the resources and the money, which is what a lot of people need. They, But we have all these labs and these mentorships. And so at a certain point, you feel like I don't need mentorship. I need money in my account to make a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, for us, I felt like it was about time. And, and now we can really flex. I was really boosted by Through Her Lens, which is a grant from Tribeca Film Institute and Chanel. And I got more money than I've ever had to make a short. And I'll just be transparent for the sake of this panel. It was like 95K. That's so much money. (laughs) Listen, at the time I was like, now we can flex. We can make a sexy short with this budget. But you know, I think I, I'm not sure if it's that number anymore. So anyone who applies, I don't know what it is now uh, because everybody's on a budget. But that was the first time that Nikia and I, my producing partner and I were like, we can shoot in a hospital for real. We can have practical effects because I work. I want to work in fantasy. And I think it's important for filmmakers to understand that what you're building in film school, if you do go to film school, is a canon of work that speaks to the work you want to make because it's really easy to get pigeonholed um, really soon in your career. And so fantasy is expensive. VFX teams are expensive. So finally we could play with like practical effects at least. And so, yeah, I, I think that we were ready. Like we were eager, we were ready. I just didn't know which idea it was going to be, which is why it's important to have people outside of your brain who have a really at least relatively objective purview that is informed by the industry of which of your ideas feels the most doable um, and working backwards from your resources for that first project is really important as well. So in those regards, I, I was I felt like it was a little overdue for me. Does anyone want to chime in? I'll chime in. I mean, um, I think the answer is the same as Nikayatu and and in, in many ways what you said to Randall was that I was just waiting for the industry to catch up and I was building my skills I ended up becoming a documentary filmmaker waiting to make this movie which was great and then I 
went on to make commercials and that was another kind of training. So I was joking with my producers on the first day of shooting our feature. It's like, I feel like Eminem in eight miles. It's like I got the one shot and I will not fuck it up. So I, we were just like, they started playing that song on the first day as a joke. And we're all like, come on, let's do this. Uh, because I'd just been waiting for so long to make it. But at the same time, you're completely not prepared because we had a tiny, tiny budget to make it. I also made a short just to, for the, those emerging filmmakers out there, I have a good story about that. Um, you know, part of the reason it took so long is I was going to these, I was asking permission from white Hollywood to make this movie. And so I would pitch to all these people and they're like, we don't get it. Who wants to see a Filipino country singer who's running from, from immigration? Like who wants to see that movie? I was like, I want to see that movie. And I think a lot of people would, if you would give me a chance, I said, no, no, no. The industry just wasn't there. And it was only after, and echoing what Sean said, all those no's that I was getting was like a weird kind of fuel to be like, fuck all these people, you know? And what changed in my situation, which is a lesson to a lot of those filmmakers who are watching this, I went to my own community, to Filipino Americans. Part of the reason I stuck with it, I, I had never seen a film with somebody from my experience. And so I started to go to any rich Filipinos I knew. And there was this one rich Filipino who I had tr spent like months trying to get a meeting. And finally I got a meeting with him and I'm pitching my feature, right? And I could see he was like, well, I don't know. I've never invested in this. And then he mentioned in the talk when I was pitching him the idea that he really loved whiplash. And I just pivoted in that moment. I totally made this up. I was just like, we know whiplash started as a short. So if you write me a check for like $40,000, I can make a short, which I had no idea of making a short. And he said, I like that. And he became my financier. And I made that short out of just like seeing the opportunity in the room. And he became my first investor. And then that same person I, invested on the feature. That, that, that was sort of the deal was that, you know, investing in the short would be first money in, not to get too technical into the feature. And that's how I sold them. I totally did, was talking out my ass. That's another lesson. Begin to, you know, it's called show business, but the, no one tells you the business part is the bigger part often, <laughs> you know, that you have, you can't do what we do with a paintbrush. You have to have money and you have to have a crew and, and all this stuff. And so that short actually, uh, you know, helped me open up to other investors. And I'm proud to say that our, our actual feature ended up being financed 100% from Filipino money. Um, and that that's how we got it made. And it's like, because I didn't have to convince those people, they were fighting the same fight and they wanted the same thing I did. I didn't have to convince them. So, um, but to answer, to, to come back to your thing, I was 100%, 1000% ready and 0% ready at the same time. I, I will say I was not ready when I thought I was ready. So after I made my short with AFI, I think I was like, that short went to Cannes and won an award at Cannes and helped me get an agent representation. And I wrote it into a feature and it got set up like right away. Like it got set up with like the Mark Gordon company and I had cast attached and I was ready to go. And then it kind of like lingered and kind of fell apart and didn't happen. And the thing about that 10 years when I was trying to make my feature is it kept getting like set up with different actors and it was kind of like herding cats. Like I'd get a cast together and I'd get some piece of the budget and then like something would go away. And, but I will say, looking back, I would say there's, there were three really important things that I made me not ready. 
Um, and I think I would have made a much less interesting movie had I made it when I, right after I made the short, which was um, in that 10 years, I started writing for television and I wrote on Orange is the New Black and Men of a Certain Age, but I was on Orange is the New Black for three seasons, three, um, a little bit into season four. And I produced every episode I wrote. So I was on sets and I was shadowing those directors and I was learning how to read a one-liner and I was learning how to make my day. And I was learning how to, you know, figure out coverage and be in the editing room. And sort of, it was like my own film school to shadow all those directors. Um, I did a ton of labs, like Ray was talking about, like I, you know, had my script and I did the film independent lab and I did the Nantucket screenwriters colony and I did, and I rewrote my script like 60 times. Like it just kept, I kept being like, Oh, that's what the movie's about. And I would kind of go back in and rewrite the script. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, um, like Nikki Yatu, I couldn't figure out how to be a mom and a filmmaker at the same time. And I was kind of holding having a child hostage until after I made my first feature. It was like, well, I can't have a baby until I make this movie. The movie was about motherhood. And I had written it from this super judgy place of being the nanny coming in to this mess of a mother and being like, some women just aren't meant to be mothers, I think would be my thesis when I wrote this initial version of the script. I kept pushing having a kid, honestly. It was like the movie would get set up and I'd be like, well, I'm not gonna have a baby now because the movie's set up. By the time I shot my feature, I um, had a 15 month old and I was uh, seven months pregnant when we actually shot. It's just timing. Oh, wow. The worst timing you could ever think of, of when it came together. But I knew what my movie was about because after I had my daughter, I had so much empathy for my villain. I had a colic baby who honestly was a nightmare for the first six months. I didn't sleep. I was a mess. And I was like, oh, I was someone who really wanted kids. And it really threw me. And I had so much empathy for my villain. And I went back and completely rewrote the script from her perspective, not from her perspective, but holding her perspective as a valid one. And it's a way more interesting movie because there's no villain, like, because it, it really wasn't, is. It wasn't this like psychotic mom who was like this trashy rich lady. I was like, Oh, this woman doesn't know how to do it. And even though that was not the ideal way to make my feature, when I finally made it, it was actually insane to shoot it at that time. I, I had a deeper understanding of the story I was telling. And I allowed my life experience in those 10 years to infiltrate my script and allowed my story to change and become more complex. So I'm so weirdly grateful for that time, even though it it was infuriating when I was living. I think, I think that's something super important to note is that all the time that it takes to get there, when you're in it, you normally feel like, you know, you're just really just want to get there. But the ones you finally get there, you look back and you're like, oh, all those years actually like really, really just prepared me for it. And had I done it five years ago, it just wouldn't have had all these layers of life that it does now. And I know it's hard to hear when you're in it, but I it, the same thing happened to me. I was just like, I really am so glad that it took this long because all the time that I spent waiting and really wanting it just made me a better thinker and a better writer and a better listener. And now I can actually do the thing. The waiting should never be waiting. It's like you should yeah. keep funneling in your story while you're waiting. Um, I, I also quickly please, please. want to supplement what 
Diane said about the burden of that first project and feeling like you can't fuck it up. Excuse my French. I don't know if we can curse, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that burden of like being a historically marginalized filmmaker kind of knocking on the door outside of the system is that we f- we put this undue burden on ourselves to make that perfect every project almost I think uh, depending on who you are but especially that first feature it's like oh my god you become a slave to initially I think you become a slave to it has to be so good that my talent is undeniable so I can make the next thing and then the next burden once you start to have a foot in the industry is oh my god box office performance like now I'm a product and my film is a product and my passion is a product it's no longer a passion it's now capital and so it's important to disabuse yourself and free yourself from the shackles of the industry's way of deciphering which stories are valuable um and just really making that first feature that is your passion project yeah uh randall and ray for both of you nick Yatu was talking a second ago about how big of a game-changing moment it was to find her producer and all of a sudden have an ally and all of a sudden have a mentor. Did either of you have someone close to you that helped you through the process? And I mean, I assume you did, or I hope you did. And if so, how did this one person or multiple people sort of like help you uh, better understand how to navigate this first experience? Uh, I married her. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what happened. Uh, I finally found someone that, you know, had my back. And I don't know, it's a rare thing when you find it. And I don't know. Um, that's kind of what happened to me. I met my wife on the AirTran at JFK. It was total happenstance. One of those wow. kind of random odd moments before the apps. Um, well, I guess, okay, Cupid. There was uh, some apps, but it wasn't wasn't quite what what it is now um and yeah like six she had a washer and dryer next thing you know i'm living in her house <laughs> you know moving out of she, Harlem, like <laughs> was she a producer when <laughs> she you was met a her? working professional so my wife actually had a job and like you know she earned a living and i was like wait what do you want to do with me i have three hundred thousand dollars in grad school debt like you don't you don't really want to get into this mess <laughs> you know so i was actually like are you sure you really like you know let's just you know let's just chill you know but it just happens life happens that way and um you know so of course because we're filmmakers i was trying my best to just like explain a little bit of like my life you know like what it's going to be like being married or being in a relationship with a filmmaker and it's it's a pretty demanding thing so instead of just like just being gone i tried to invite her into that process and so i was making films i was making shorts in film school and so she started to sort of produce on her, you know, in her spare time and after she, work. And she weekend. produced before that. She had never. Well, she was she was a sort of a, she was an assistant director at, at MoMA and she was doing like big stuff. So she had a big job. I guess she was producing within the, the corporate you know structure, but, you know, never in film. But her, you know, so but she loved film. She knew more about film than I did. And I was in film school. So it was super weird. And I was like, wait, I don't understand. Like, why do you know all this stuff? And. So she, you know, she just had this eclectic background. I just met an amazing woman. It was just like one of those things that I didn't feel like I deserved. And I and I really just tried to mess it up as much as I possibly could because I couldn't like no one should love me this much. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'd never felt that like 
my mom left when I was young. I had mommy issues. I had crazy stuff. So I was like, like, no, like anytime I felt love, I was trying to like push it away. Cause it's like, you can't, I'm going to hurt you or it's going to end up bad. And I just don't want to put this on someone that's perfect. And so I kind of met that person in my life. And at some point I stopped resisting it and just thought like, okay, like this is my therapy. I got to go through this process for whatever reason. And that's kind of what happened to me. So then I started to, you know, we started to make short films together and, you know, my career really started to take a different shape once I had that producer, once I had somebody that like truly cared about me as a person, like forget like the actual like skill of producing, just someone that like actually read your stuff. Like you didn't just send it, you know, like someone that read it and actually didn't tell you it was great. Um, You know, someone that actually could give you valid feedback, you know, and I felt like, you know, it's funny. She's, you know, she's not like you, like if I told her we made like 10 million, like she doesn't care. Like it doesn't matter. There's no up, there's no down. So like for better or worse, that's just kind of who she is. She's just like kind of raw like that. And I had never had that. I always had people that told me great stuff. It's amazing. Or, you know, it was never, you know, and it was, it was real. I felt like I had someone that can give me real feedback. She wasn't ever too happy about anything that I did, you know, and that was a, that was like the defining moment in my life, you know, my partner and then somebody that I could count on truly like, and and that was like, I don't know, I'm not saying marry all your producers, but like, that's kind of what happened. (laughs) I, I fell in love with the person that I felt like, you know, and I never expected her to produce, I, you know, in that in in a real sense. I think it was more us becoming a relationship and she was supporting me in that way. And, you know, that's how we started. You know, that's how our relationship started. And then, yeah, you know, I started making short films together. And, you and know, Ray, some... be- beyond the short films, what was her role on Monsters and Man? She became an EP because like she was at the time working full time and she was a a mother because we had a, you know, we had a kid and we, you know, she was, I think, eight, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, the, my timeline's messed up. Don't ask me. I'm bad about yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Same. She's on here. That's I'm embarrassed, but yeah, she was, we had the kid and I was hustling and she was working. She, you know, she, because she had a job, I was, I just had a little bit of cushion to like not have to pay back my student loan immediately because I wasn't paying rent. And so just that little buffer, that little buffer was able, but I didn't waste that time. I wasn't sitting on the couch doing nothing. I was like, well, here's this woman that's going to work to to like help support. Like I'm going to do everything that I can to like try. But I always thought like, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to have to go get a regular job like someone else or, you know, go teach or figure something out. But it happened, you know, that's it. just, you know, the little hard work. But like every time I thought I was going to give up, which I'm sure some of us may have faced, it was just like, it. am I chasing the dream? Like, am I just chasing something that's not actually real? Like, because I had had success. I actually, you know, I went to Cannes with a short film and all this stuff, but like, it didn't mean money. It didn't mean anything. And then I had debt. So it was like, am I still chasing this thing that's not actually real? Like, I have I might actually have to give up because I can't support myself like this isn't this isn't real. And every time I was like, well, this is going to go away. Something would happen. A grant from Tribeca, like two grand, just enough. Like, oh, okay, maybe just maybe. And like every time that would happen, be like two grand, fifteen hundred until enough little pieces came together that just gave me enough breathing room to to get to that next 
to get to that next thing. And that's kind of what happened. And then once the ball gets rolling, then it gets rolling and, and all that other stuff, you know, kind of kind of happened, you know, but I haven't possibly, I can't stop working. Cause I think I'm, I'm never going to work again. My life is over every movie. I feel the same. So, you know, it's like, um, you know, so now I'm like, I have to work all the time because I'm like, it's going to, the bottom's going to drop out and forget about it. And you know, that's it. But anyway, long winded story. I married my producer and, and that's the rest is history. Uh, Randall, for you, did you have, did you have a mentor? Did you have uh, uh, an ally? Yeah. You know, I think one of the advantages of of having been been an actor for so long is that that I've gotten to work with so many different directors just over the years, and 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 to build these relationship with these directors, and you know, to to see that yeah, when a director like likes you, likes working with you, they use you again and again, and you get to become friends with these directors, and and. Uh, uh, and so I had a bunch, you know, Nanachka Khan, uh, Nick Stoller was a big help, uh, Josh Greenbaum. Uh, I, I mean, just the, just so many. Every time I see a director that I knew or hung out, I, I'd pick their brains and ask them questions, depending on what stage I was in the process, you know. And uh, and even before, even well before, you know, my acting career got started, I. When I was at UCLA and I co-founded this theater company, this Asian American theater company, and my friends in that theater company would so many years later end up becoming my producing partners. And these guys knew me, they know me, you know, and they, and they became a great source of uh, support and, and uh, 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 you know, they kind of went in different paths in the industry. And so they, they, they knew areas of, of how this thing works that I didn't, you know, even having been in the industry for so long. So, so uh, yeah, it, it was that, that journey, having that journey certainly, you know, yeah. uh, brought me a lot of uh, uh, just a lot of friends who, who, who were great resources. And did you ever feel like you potentially knew too much because you have been exposed to so much, you know, so much stuff, so many directors, so many actors, you have such a good understanding of, you know, how a set run. Did you ever feel like it was a hindrance? Like it maybe wasn't allowing you to have that sort of like discovery or, or that like first time feeling that I feel like so many first time directors have? Uh, no, I never, I, I never felt that too much. I mean, I, I think maybe it's, uh, I mean, I, I came in ready for sure, but but I, I don't know, just my nature, you know, I'm just not like naturally the most confident person. I'm always like, you know, kind of open for ready for anything and 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 very open minded about about things and, and ready to learn always, you know, and uh, uh, and I think that the, having that uh, attitude, you know, it, it, it really helped and it also helped make everything feel a lot more collaborative, which felt like everyone in the project had more ownership and uh, I was always like ready to listen. And, and for me, it was like the best idea wins, you know, and, uh, uh, and sometimes, you know, sometimes that can lead you astray, you know, from, from your original vision. And, and, but, you know, sometimes it, a lot of times it makes it better, you know? And uh, uh, so, so yeah, it, I, I don't think it was a hindrance at all to have that experience. Um, for all of you, whoever feels like they would want to answer after being through this experience of making your first feature and then, you know, beyond and looking back, understanding what you needed, what you knew at the time, what you didn't know, what you thought you knew, 
if you were given sort of like the opportunity to mentor a first time filmmaker and you had the chance to sort of like just really be there in this hypothetical world, you're just there from beginning to end, really sort of like holding someone's hand through this like very complex experience. Is there anything that you would do or what would be your approach or your philosophy? Some things that you feel like are musts in order to assure that a first time director has you know, a creative, fulfilling, successful experience? I think one of the things that I remember doing, and I was lucky because my DP that I made my first short film with, which was Mother, was Paola Huidobro. She was an AFI student and, you know, I was doing the directing workshop for women and we made that short together. Um, and then 10 years later, she shot my feature. So we sort of, and we made another short together in the meantime. And, um, one she's the, incredible, by the way. I, I've just worked, I, I was just worked with her and she's amazing. I love Paula. Um, she shot Coda too and Little America. I mean, she she has been a longtime collaborator, but I remember one of the things we did and it was so valuable and everyone has such a short amount of time when they make their first feature, right? Your schedule never fits into the days that you have. You don't have enough money for everything and you don't have money to save your own ass when you get boxed into a corner. And I remember going through and shot listing with her and looking at every scene and being like, if everything goes to shit and I can only get one thing here, what is it? right? Like what is this scene about and what is the most important thing here that I have to get, or I don't have my story because I think the hardest thing to do as a director is like production is so chaotic and you're being pulled in a million different directions and being able to like stop down in the middle of all of it and being like, what do I need from this exact moment? And if I don't have it, I don't have my movie. Um, and, and that kind of clarity where I'd almost like made notes to myself that we did when we were shot listing, whether it was like one image from a scene or one key emotional thing that I needed. And so then when you like lose your location and you're running, you know, I remember we were shooting down in the subways, a pivotal scene of Tallulah, like basically the ending scene or, you know, when Tallulah goes to escape and like almost gets on the train and, and the subway, we lost the subway. Like we ran out of time and they pulled the subway from us and we lost it. And I was like, I have to have this character almost getting on a train and then deciding not to. And I have to get that no matter how. And we went and stole the shot on like a live subway platform with me and Paula and Elliot. And like, we just like basically almost got arrested trying to get this one shot because I was like, I don't have my movie. I don't have my movie if I don't have this one moment and I'm never going to get a pickup shot and I'm never going to get like, this is my one chance to get it. So I think it's like definitely in your prep and finding a way to like know your story so inside out that when those moments come up, you really get to like check in with yourself and like close the noise out and be like, what, why was this here? And also, why was this here? Maybe it can go. You know, I always talk about like there's $1 scenes and $5 scenes. Like if it's a $1 scene, like maybe it can go on that day when you've run out of time and maybe you schedule that at the end of the day. So, you know, if you have to, you can get rid of it. It's so hard. Like the things you learn as a director over time, it's so hard to know those things going in. But if you know your story really inside out, you can have your 
AD or your more experienced crew around you sort of guide you because you can always be able to say, I need this one thing. Like, I don't need anything else. I don't need the boat or the sunset or the whatever, but I do need this one character beat, like help me get it. Um, and so I think that clarity of like why every scene is there in your movie is super important. Uh, I got so much anxiety thinking about the the technical aspects of your shoot and all the New York stuff and all the subway stuff and the chases and the cops. Don't put babies in your movie. And, and the babies. Put a baby in. I, I remember like a producer reading the script. It was so expensive to make that feature because it was in New York City and we had like subway chases and whatever. But the baby killed me. And we had... I think eight babies playing one baby. If any of you want to play a fun game, watch Tallulah. That's amazing. There's one two minute sequence where the baby's face changes like six different times. That's so good. And my editor and I remember was like, I was like, everyone's going to be writing about this. Like this baby's face changes every two seconds. Cause I would be like, this baby's crying. Get me a different baby. Like, I don't care if that baby has the wrong face. It was so impossible to shoot a movie with a baby in every scene. It was pretty much yeah i mean it's it's hard to shoot babies at all but you had i mean a protagonist of your movie and probably 90 percent of the shots is a baby and my own daughter was was i guess she was 16 months old and i called her my booty call baby because (laughs) she did not look like any of the other babies but when i ran out of babies you guys made it in call my husband and i was like Put that fucking Not booty call baby costume. Booty call I am baby. putting her in the scene. She was my booty call baby. She was like, all the studio teachers have gone home. Like, That's so good. Wake up that baby, bring her to set and put her in that costume. I don't care. And so she's in the movie, like a bunch of key places where I ran out of babies. And oh, that's so I good. Had a baby in there. Yeah. You need a booty call baby sometimes when, when you're, when you've only got two hours with those kids. That's um that's that's a sound bite. Um anyone else would have any thoughts for you know if you were to mentor a, a first time filmmaker? Well one one thing for me must... that, that really uh and I think I just picked it up just from again my years uh, you know on different sets as an actor, you know, when 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 you could feel when when sets are not harmonious, you know, you could you know, you might not even know where it's coming from, you know, like as an actor, you know, you, but you could feel everyone's tense, you know, for some reason. And, and it's, and, uh, and I thought about that a lot and other experiences as an actor. And it's, it was really important for me when hiring like department heads to, to make sure that people are like nice, you know, like, uh, and, and for everyone who's, you know, you want to make sure they're great at what they do, and if someone just doesn't seem nice, you know, yeah. there are people who are just as great who are nice. You just you might have to dig a little more to find that person, but uh, but it, it it totally like made it worth it, you know, to 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 because yeah, I mean, low budget films are very difficult to make and and very challenging, and you run into a lot of very tense, just naturally tense situations. You want people who are who are uh going to be professional and and kind and you know and and uh uh and proactive in a kind way and uh and 
you know, in every interview with heads of departments, I would bring this up. And so many times I, you know, I'd be like, we have, a, you know, everyone has to be super nice on this, this set. Uh, and I, I, it would always be like, oh my God, thank God you said that, you know? And, uh, and whenever I'd see that, I'd be like, great, great. This, you, you value that too. And, uh, uh, and it definitely made things a lot smoother. You worked with Santiago Gonzalez. Who's the a best. Good friend. The best. Amazing DP. Yeah. I would say, just quickly, look, I think probably for all of us, we you need some sort of deep, unrelenting belief in yourself to kind of take to do it. And it's hard because we all doubt and there's so many things that come into your mind. But like there's still that like voice that tells you to be stronger and you push through. I don't know if that comes from competitive, like whatever that is inside of you. But you got to listen to that. You got to listen to that voice because I was like the last kid to get into my film school program. There were way smarter kids What, like, you know, NYU, AFI, USC, like top film schools in the world. Right. All this money. I out of my graduating class. There's like five people that have made one feature. Yeah, that's just the realities. That's the statistics. That's what you're facing. And this is like that's the film school route. Right. Like. That is the reality. But like, there's no reason why they can't make movies. They had way more money. than Some of those kids are not coming out with any debt. So something's getting in the way, right? There's like they're a complete mental inability to get over some hurdles in your life. And like, that's the thing you have to investigate and like, and tackle. At the end of the day, like it's that little voice, that burning voice inside that tells you that you are worth it. You can do it. There is a roadmap out there. People have done it. Keep it simple, you know, and you have to constantly like talk to yourself and like work through and navigate like all of those negative voices that come in. You know, I tell a lot of I'm not on social media. I don't have anything wrong with I think if if you can use it for good. But some people like can't. They're looking at everybody else and what they're doing and what like the world and it's just it feels so massive like how do you insulate yourself for a certain period of time so like go on a whatever that is that says like i gotta shut all that stuff out to like for a little bit just like a little bit of time to like just move forward and then do something every day towards that project like if you can't sit if you sit in a cafe like and nothing comes out for eight hours it's a waste of eight hours so like send an email have a meeting, talk to someone else. Like you can, you can, yeah, maybe you didn't write that day, but you wrote by like moving your project forward. Like, don't just like sit there. No one's going to do it for you. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like you are the only person that's going to do, of course, producers and support and all those people in your life that give you that. But like, at some point I got to like put the Snickers down and like get on the Peloton. Like I got to do it. Like, that's like you have to do it. There's some there there is a roadmap to do it. And the, and it's just taking that step. So, like, don't try to do everything in one day. Toke those t- those baby steps. But it really comes with, like, just talking to yourself a lot about your own belief in it. And it like, look, at the end of the day, you should ask yourself, is, is your movie the kind of movie that you would go see in the theater? Mm-hmm. Would you go support your own film? And if the answer is no, pick up another idea. You're not making it for somebody else, but like you should be able to go see your own movie. I teach. I'm still a teacher. I'm an assistant professor in the film department at George Mason University. And um, so this is not a thought exercise for me. I actively 
have to inspire film students and encourage them to make films and write films that are feasible. And so I think the, the biggest thing that I'll start with is community. Forging community is really important. None of us is an island. Um, I'm not this far because I'm this far because of my collaborators. I'm this far because I chose intelligent people and they chose me in return. Um, and additionally, I'm this far because at some point I harness my self-awareness. So I learned what I am good at, what I'm not good at, and who I need to fill the gaps of my skill sets. So being honest with yourself about what you can execute and what you can't, identifying those skill sets and people you like um, who are also good at those things is really important. I don't have the luxury of marrying my producer. I, I know many male filmmakers who dated their producers, cis, cishet, you know, male filmmakers who dated their producers and maybe married them. It's a luxury. Um, it's hard to find. To make some money together. It's hard to. It's hard to find a man <laughs> who wants to support, you know, a woman filmmaker. Um, but I think that community, first and foremost, harnessing your tribe, filling, figuring out what your skill set is, allocating responsibility to people who you vibe with, who also fill in those gaps, and then writing backwards from your resources. Like, do you have a friend who has a beach house in? you know, off the coast of Georgia? Do you have a friend who has access to an actor who's rising and who's really good at what they do and you can write a role for that person? Do you have access to a, a DP with amazing equipment who's not going to charge you because they want to expand their reel? Um, for me, teaching, I made a lot of shorts with a filmmaker named Yvonne Michelle Shirley, who was a a peer at NYU grad film and we graduated and still didn't have features. So we cobbled together our resources and wrote a script based on those resources. So writing backwards from what you have access to, we had access to Brooklyn teenagers in, in the peak of summer exterior day shots are your cheapest, you know, shots to shoot. You don't need lights. You don't. You just need a camera. You need compelling actors in a compelling location, exterior daylight. So um, figure out what you have access to. Figure out your your community. Start to identify people who want to create alongside you. All of that is super important in terms of building a canon for yourself. Because I had to make many a short film before I made my feature, which is why my answer to your previous question, Carlos, was. It was about goddamn time because I made various shorts that did really well and I was ready to tackle with my producing partner who we practiced together on our short films, you know, that big feature. So practicing with your tribe, building with the community and writing based on what you have access to, what is cheap and free. Yeah. Uh, you're all giving such incredible I have one I have a tiny thing yeah to yeah say. please please just because I was just talking about it today with another filmmaker and that is you called this talk the miracle of your first film and it's a miracle to get it made but I was just romanticizing how free it was you know yes you have no money yes you you know it took you 10 15 years to get there but when you get there my advice would be to enjoy the moment because as we navigate through the industry I'm doing a 
my first studio film, it becomes so much about these other voices and these other people. And then you have a whole other world of things that are, you know, going to be in front of you. And I think all of us know what, what I'm talking about, but that you have one first film that you'll ever make and you have to treat it like the miracle that it is and enjoy every moment. I have just one short story. There's a the, the one scene that I had in every version of the 60, Sean, I had probably 70 drafts of the script over the years was this one scene. It was really difficult. And at the end, it was a, it was a night shoot into day shoot. Um, if you've seen the film, it's the arrest of the mom that goes into the morning that she runs through the field and we shot it in order in one day and I had no time to do it again. That was it. And it was this scene that was the most important scene in the film. And by the end of it, it was all done on the flight, the cops that showed up were trying to stop us. I'm like, roll on it. And they had the sirens, you know, we were like escaping this. We were running through cactuses, the 80, by the end of it, there was two people in the hospital. People were quitting. I think my AD quit. It was, people were crying. Everyone was upset. And I am alone in the D with the DIT secretly cheering and, and savoring this moment that I'd waited so long for. And it worked. And it was the thing I thought it was. And that moment will never come again, I think. You know, you have this one moment when you can pull all the magic and the, the mystery and the beauty and the pain of putting that fucking movie together. When you are there, be present. And that joy and that appreciation will come through and it will show in the film. Um, and I think all of our films was born out of pain, love and belief and fear. And there's a reason that we're all here is because I think we we operated from that point and then it, it does end up showing up. So enjoy the moment, enjoy the miracle and um, appreciate it in the moment. I want to add one quick thing too about casting, because I think a lot of us, as you're trying to get your movie financed, they're the way that you do it, right? When you are not the asset on the movie is often through attach this person, get this person in. Um, I, my advice would also be like, you have to trust your gut about when you're making a compromise, that's going to sacrifice your movie too. Um, like there's a lot of that horse trading where it's like, well, if you got that actor into your movie, it would get made. Maybe that actor's really not right for that part. And it's so hard to say no to that because it's like, but the movie will get made. Um, and so I would say in the same way know that the decisions you're making, like know what Diane was just saying, like it is a miracle that your movie gets made, but like, it's not just about getting it made. It's not just about going out there and getting that like, you know, person that's randomly worth something foreign financing wise that you're like, why? And then you put them in your movie because that's going to get your movie made. Like getting the thing made should not be the goal. Like you have to tell your story, right? And I think that's really a struggle for a lot of filmmakers starting out. And there were actors I walked away from on Tallulah that I thought, people thought I was crazy. And it's true, like the movie would fall apart and then it would be like another two years. And I'd be like, I don't know. I just need to wait for the right cast too because this is who I'm stuck with at the end of the day. And, you know, uh, sure, I could put that person in and and I get my money tomorrow but that's not a movie I want to go see. That's not a movie I'm going to make. And that compromises my film. So that's just a little note about the compromise dance that I think you have to make. And really just like the listening to your gut, which ultimately 
I think it's easy when you're wanting something so bad to maybe ignore it sometimes, but more often than not, that maybe doesn't lead to the best outcome. Um, Yeah, such incredible wisdom from all of you. Thank you. Okay, next question is just about the themes of your movies, because all five of your films deal with very complex, delicate subjects. Uh, Ray, in your case, you know, police brutality, Diane, immigration, a family that's undocumented. Um, There's a two-part question, and for whoever wants to answer, the first one's, how did you handle your subject matter responsibly? So whether it was advisors, whether it was a team of people who you could reach out for uh, feedback, who would, you know, look, read your drafts, look at your cuts. And then the second part to the question is, what would you... What would be your advice to someone who's preparing to make a first feature that is exploring issues that are complex or triggering or require a lot of research resources support, but may not have access to it? So I guess first part is how did you handle it in your particular movie? And second part is to someone else who may not have all the resources required to do it, um, you know, as you could on a major film, what would you recommend? I'll go first. Um, you know, my background is documentary filmmaking. So when I was knowing I was leaning into the immigration part, I went to uh, the Filipino American uh, Legal Defense Fund that allowed me to go into detention centers and interview families, which I did and I filmed. And a lot of that one particular story became the basis, the spine of the story of what happens in my film. And so that's free. And what happened... Um, from that is actually found my producer back to your one of your original questions. It was a young volunteer who uh, I was who helped me navigate through that system. And she just volunteered to want to work with me. And through the years, she just was showed up every day. So that anybody who's wanting to be a producer, she had no experience, kind of like your wife, Ray, and just just kept showing up and believed in me and believed in the project because of the subject matter and also wanted to see a Filipino villain. Over time, I made her my lead producer over time, but we I kept interviewing people and making sure that that story was authentic, but that's partly my, my background. And so talking to real people with these experiences is free. And that when you're waiting to do your film, doing that due diligence actually gives you actual texture and, um, and, and all that stuff. And then one other thing was, you know, the budgetary constraints of our film. There was one scene I remember, um, which is, I think, a great story of independent filmmaking. When we were shooting the detention center, I wanted to have all these cots because that's what I saw when I visited the detention center. But my production designer was like, we can afford three cots. That's it. And I said, what? And then he said, but look at this picture in the news today. They use these mylar sheets, these like, like aluminum foil sheets uh, and people sleep on the grounds because they've become overcrowded. And we they're like, we can buy a hundred mylar sheets. And it became like, you know, constantly doing the research and constantly being aware of what was happening in the world actually made that seem much more visually interesting and also just horrifying and real. So um, reflecting, you know, reflecting the world around you and being aware of that and always being mindful. And then I made a lot of the principal cast go with me to a refugee center where families of undocumented families were being um, held and seeing those real families and they're hearing their stories really motivated my actors and even some of the crew to feel the importance of what we were doing and to know that this was really happening 
everywhere around us. So, yeah. um, Ray, I'll pass it over to you just because I, I think that I was re-watching your movie a couple of nights ago and uh, it really hit me, I think, just as much as it did the first time. But in my head, I was just like, this is such a real, real masterful, uh, delicate managing of some really complicated ideas and just curious to see how how you went through that process. Well, I should be saying the same about you because we have movies together in the same, you know, two day window, which is amazing. And and Carlos's movie is fantastic. Look, I, they say write what you know, you know, and and I I tried to do just that. Like I grew up in New York City. Um, all the characters are based on people I knew or or instances that I knew or conversations that I had. Um, you know, I grew up with a lot of New York City police officers who were on my high school baseball and, and high school football teams who were real cops, who are real friends, people that I hung out with that I know. Now we have every, you know, when they go home, they go home to very different viewpoints. I didn't know that. And, and that was the most interesting thing for me was just getting to finally peek behind the curtain of somebody else's door you know, for the first time. So even though I knew them in the baseball and the public setting, I didn't know them at home. And so that was part of my job was to try to understand what it was like to be a police officer outside of just doing the job and meeting them and seeing them on the street was actually to go into the house and see that kind of thing. And so, you know, I think, again, it's just trying to know your subjects as much as you can. You know, I was writing my first film. So instead of just writing in a generic coffee shop, I would go to a coffee shop in a neighborhood that I was writing in. like. I didn't go like I wasn't in the, you know, in the nice area. I was like, oh, well, I should go. I should actually go to where my characters are. I should hang out there. Why am I writing from like a tower up here? I should I should be on on the same playing field. And I think that's, you know, like very similar to documentary filmmaking a little bit is kind of being on the same ground. You know, I'm not I want to be inside my characters. I want to be inside of the conversation. I want to know what it's like to be in the barbershop, so to speak. So go there, you know, right from there, you know, those are where the real conversations happen. That's where everybody talks, you know, and that's where the, the lingo comes from. That's where all those things come from. You know, obviously the structure and all that stuff that, that it's a little bit more complicated and, and all of that, but like the characters are really based on people that I knew and conversations that I had. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, you know, to answer the second part, which I think I kind of did a little bit, which is, you know, you have to do the homework. I wouldn't write about things that I don't know. Um, that's a scary territory. Uh, I, I just wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Which is probably why I haven't done the Marvel thing yet, because I'm like, I, I don't I don't know. I'm not, you know, like I, I, don't, I don't I don't know those characters. Maybe I would be fine. I, there's no like that's not like what I grew up watching. So that's not hasn't been my path because it's not I'm not that I'm that just. But again, like I'll read real fast, you know, you like they, they call me to do, I'll start, you know, I'll do my homework, but like, you have to do the homework on, on that thing. You have to do the homework. And yeah. if you don't do the homework, people know. So I think ultimately if the characters feel lived in or breathed in, it's because you did that work. I mean, there's no other way to do it unless you know. And like, that's why all of these first features feel so intimate. They're so personal, but yet they still have like, universal appeal because because of that because of how intimate and personal they are they are able to reach other people because other people can identify with the same same feeling or similar things and i think that's all you're trying to do is to 
give someone such a unique, such a personalized view of what that is so that, you know, that someone else can relate to it. Yeah. Uh, Nikki, I read um, this really great interview you did on Vulture and in it, you speak about sort of like being forced to navigate white spaces as a black woman during most of your life. And, you know, as we all know, the the film industry is no different. So I was just curious if there was anything particularly challenging uh, you encountered in telling a black story with you know so many layers of cultural specificity, African folklore, in an environment that is you know definitely not used to exploring these types of stories. Yeah, you know what? I briefly saw that in the prep work, and yeah. I my brain was like malfunctioning in terms of how to even so you know, everybody knows, not everybody, but I just got off the leg of my first feature doing press that all last year. Um, and it was meteor, like it was a whirlwind. I went out of post-production right into a press run, my first press run. And I don't, I'm not necessarily someone who is created of the industry. And so I didn't really have a lot of patience for the press run. I really thought that naively in retrospect that my actors would go out and do their thing and I would be working on my next project. I would be writing my next project. I would be doing things that are writer director things and not uh, camera ready things. And so all year, Carlos, last year, I've had to answer the question from mostly white male uh, interviewers mm -hmm. about what it's like to navigate this industry as a black woman and all of the inequities that I have to navigate. And I got to a point where I was like, you know what, this is performative. This is people filling up time with uh, word salads because none of these people intend or have even the bandwidth or the power to change anything. So this is all performative. This is not serving me as a Black woman filmmaker who has to figure out her next project and has to essentially manifest her next project. So I'm at a point in this industry where I'm like, not enough white male filmmakers are asked questions about authenticity. Not enough white male filmmakers are asked questions about what it's like to navigate this industry as a white male, because the rest yeah. of us have these labels, but whiteness, whiteness and maleness don't necessarily have those labels. And so I'm at a point where I'm like, unless we're having a conversation about remedying the inequities that exist, I'm focused not on the obstacles that I've navigated in these predominantly white spaces since middle school. I'm focused on surviving these, these systems not intended for me to survive them. And I'm also focused on lifting other people up. I think that's beautiful. And hopefully, I think seeing all your five faces on this panel and taking the time to speak to so many filmmakers who are starting their careers and asking these same questions, I think is so, so meaningful. So I thank you very much for like taking the time to be here and and like be so honest with so honest and so vulnerable with the answers that you've been sharing today. So thank you for that. Nikita. Thank you for having me. Uh, Randall, question for you. Yeah. Uh, your your movie deals with a character who's like very concerned with people's opinions and criticism over creative work. Someone who's kind of like given into cynicism and has like a really hard time 
just existing and appreciating sort of like what's around them. Um, did this character mirror your own journey at all? Did you feel like you had, uh, because you were so aware of sort of like the the universe that you were stepping into, did you feel like you have you had any trouble discovering sort of like the magic of of making your first movie versus keeping this critical eye? Uh, I I, th- I think that I think that uh, that that type of character kind of exists in all of us to a degree, you yeah. know, uh, and uh, I think there is a, a, you know, yeah, the 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 lead character in Shortcomings is definitely a, a snob and 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 a, a prick, you know, and not a not a the, not who he, who we we should aspire to be. And he's very unhappy because of that. And uh, I, I can identify with that to a degree. But I, I wouldn't say that it, uh, it it's definitely not my you know my nature like uh, of who I am like I, I it, it's it's the it's the kind of person that I very actively try to uh, uh, try to not be and try to combat that side of myself always you know and and try to uh, to uh, um, not be miserable you know uh like this guy but in, in the course of kind of making the movie i uh yeah i thought about those sides of myself and those sides of friends that i know and 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 also how it exists in in this community you know this asian american community and why and 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 incorporating all those elements and making sure that they're they're you know they're alive uh uh throughout because that that's kind of what fascinated me about the source material to begin with it was it, it really showed these sides of of me and my friends that you don't get to see on film that often you know uh the the, the cynical sides the 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 uh the 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 bitterness that's there you know that comes with uh being being asian in in america you know and uh uh and so it was, yeah, it was, it was, if anything, it was cathartic in a lot of ways to, to, to tell the story and to, um, to be able to, to shine a light on, on, yeah, these aspects of, of, of myself and, and of this community. Question for all of you, and this is kind of tied to what you were just talking about, Randall, but with such you know, complex emotional demands for your characters and for yourself, I think all of your movies deal with like very, very difficult human emotions. Was there anything specific that you did to take care of either yourself as an artist, as you were going through this process or your actors, as you were asking them to travel into some uh, very complicated scenarios? I think had Shauna mentioned that she had like two kids. It was like, I was very much in the same, like, I'm not going to allow life to stop myself. And and anytime you can be vulnerable, I think to actors, I think they can be vulnerable to, vulnerable to you. I think there's, um, I find my job as a director is to create a space for actors to feel as vulnerable as they can. It's really scary to do what they do. They're like, they're naked in front of you and they're bearing their souls. And it's like, how do you create an environment for them to do that and do what you need them to do? And the only way that I know how to do that is to be myself, be goofy, be however I can be. And and I'm like, 
maybe too transparent sometimes. I just feel like I'm just like, my life is your life. My kids are your kids. Like I, I, I just, it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same journey. So that kind of open level of communication, no one's better than anybody else, but I'm like, I'm also, I think that's just who I am. I've done every job you can possibly imagine. My first job was like Chuck E. Cheese dancing as the rat. Like there's nothing I haven't done, right? Like from landscaping, like I did every job, every job there is like a little league umpire, you know, YMCA, like gymnastics coach. I've done it all. There's nothing I've worked on wall street. I was a kindergarten teacher. Like I've done everything. So like when I go and I speak to other people, like I treat my, everybody on set is treated the same, whether you're Tom Cruise, it doesn't matter. I don't like, none of that stuff ever mattered to me. And I think there's just something like deeply human about what we do, about the experience. And if you can treat people that way, I think there's like a synergy or a reciprocation that happens in that process. And I think, I, I don't know, it's a little bit of a jumbled answer to be like from kids, but my life is is an open book when I go when I go to set. It's not separate from that thing. Of course, I want to shield my family and that kind of stuff, but it's like I'm very vulnerable about my experience, about what's hard about it, what's challenging for me, um, how I can get support. I know what my strengths are and I know what my weaknesses are, and I try to I try to get support in the areas that I need help, and I'm not afraid to ask for help. I don't like to do it, but I, I'm not afraid to do it. And that's the difference. It's like at some point you have to realize where your shortcomings are and you're going to have to like fill in, as you know, Nikiyatsu said before, those gaps. And I think it's all about trying to understand that, like what position do you play on the field? If that if for any sports analogies out there, it's like like, are you the writer? Are you the director? Are you the producer? Like, who are you? So that you can clearly communicate that to your like to your team and like through every step of the process, like and of course, like I'm getting better, like I haven't like figured this all out yet. I mean, it's taken me a bunch of films to get to even ground zero. I still feel like I'm like, OK, like I messed up enough times to realize like what I might be better at next time. That's and I mean, that's the joy of filmmaking a little bit is like all the you know i did okay even with all the mess ups with all the failures i've like i've done okay and i think there's like just an a vulnerability about that there's like an openness that you have to have because then people feel that that's real i mean at least i find that actors find that it's real when they're with me so they can feel safe and then they can give a performance and i'm not afraid to tell them that it didn't work or let's try it another way or how can we how can we both achieve something? You know, there's there's diplomatic ways to do things and and how you can kind of keep that keep that process of communication clear and open. And again, being honest about what you don't know, I think is 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 one of the biggest things that I've learned. You know, I, there's a place in time for that, too. Um, I should say I should say that with a caveat, because obviously, as someone, you, you know, there is a place in time for that vulnerability. But I think just being vulnerable is an, is an important thing to be able to show. And I would say your actors are your most important collaborators, too. I mean, especially on an indie movie, especially on your first movie, they're not getting paid a lot. They're there because they believe in the story and they're your allies and your collaborator. And I think what Ray is saying about being vulnerable um, 
and being in it together. I mean, those babies truly as sweet as they were almost destroyed our set. And I would say like Elliot page was the biggest trooper about holding those kids because we realized that anytime you had to put a baby into a shot or take a baby out of a shot, like you'd call cut and you'd want to hand the baby back to the mom. And then if you did that, you were kind of fucked because then you'd have to reintroduce the baby to the actor when you went to call action. So basically Elliot and I realized that like the only way to do it was for him to hold the baby and keep that baby basically all day, you know, like basically not ever handed over to the mom. So he was like a full-time babysitter along with acting. It was just so making wild. songs and stories. And, and it was like, but having actors, I mean, both Elliot and Alice and Janney, I love these people so much. And they were just in it with me. It was like, whatever we need to do to make this movie. And I think acknowledging as a director too, when you're like, I know this is hard and we're down in the subway and everybody's sweating and everybody's dying because we have no AC and you don't have a good trailer. And, but like you're a team and you're all fighting for the same thing and you're willing to look out for them too. And I would say things like, you know, when do you want to do this scene? This is really emotional. Do you want to go first? Do you want to go last? Like what works best for you? Do you want me to cover the other person? So you're ready to go. Like just having full communication with your actors so that they are in it with you and they're your collaborators and you're caretaking them. Um, because the most confident people in the world, like Alice and Danny, who to me is like master Meryl Streep level actress. Yeah. You know, I remember when we started shooting, like, She'd do one take and I'd be like, well, that was perfect. I don't know what to tell her. I guess I'll just have her do something else. And, <laughs> and then I realized she was like, was it okay? Was I bad? Was I, you know, I'm like, oh, she needs like full reassurance from me that what she's giving me is amazing. And I never would have thought that. I would have thought that actor has had this long career, all this validation. It's so vulnerable acting and you need, you need to be acknowledged. You need to know that your director has your back you know, that, that relationship is to me, the most important relationship that you have on that set. Yeah. I, I remember finishing my first movie and just like feeling like a shell of a person <laughs> and just like having to do so much therapy and like family time after to just feel like I could uh, remember who I was and what I was doing here. It, anyway, that's, that's, that's just me. <laughs> my advice is be pregnant. Raise it marry your producer. But honestly, my advice is don't be pregnant. Don't have kids. It's <laughs> the only way to survive this system. I I was the that was the healthiest I've ever been on a set because I was like, oh, I gotta take care of this baby in my belly. I usually finish a movie and I'm like fully destroyed, like cannot walk. I get sick <laughs> on every shoot. But that I was like, okay, gotta eat right, gotta have snacks, gotta have, you know, and it was actually a good lesson in like you have to take care of yourself when you're shooting because it destroys your body and it messes you up. Yeah. And like, when you, if you go down, like it all goes down and it's really hard to do. And I'm sort of joking about being pregnant, but also it was like the first time I've ever taken care of myself on a set. And it was because I wasn't thinking about me. So my DP was Rena Yang. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with Rena Yang. Amazing. She's brilliant. Um, your your but... movie looks gorgeous like every frame it's of your supposed movie, to I would, I would print <laughs> i hope every, so 
any frame of your movie, I would like print and put up on a wall. It's beautiful. Listen, whole my department heads were killers, but she turned to me one day and she was like, you are the healthiest director I've ever worked with. Cause I, instead of like, my sense of self-preservation is very high. And so before COVID being on sets, I'd be like, this is a breeding ground for sickness because people are nasty and dirty and people are reaching into bowls and people are shitting in the toilet and coming out and not washing their hands. It's gross. And so Corinne Kusama, you all may be familiar with Corinne Kusama, was one of my mentors in the Sundance Screenwriters Labs. And she was one of the few filmmakers in the master classes who brought up self-care, like as a tool to make the best film that you can make. Self-care is important. I, I fought to work out. I, I work out. I, I, I'm not on set drinking coffees and smoking. Like I, I, you have to preserve yourself because you are the captain essentially of the ship. And so if you're not taking care of yourself, as Sean said, it, it kind of trickles down to everyone. So self-care is not just a luxury. It is a necessity yeah. as a working filmmaker. Yeah. Okay. We have not a lot of time left and we have a couple of questions. Let's see if this works, but I'm going to try to get to as many as possible. So I'll encourage you all to maybe just give us short answers if anyone has just like bite-sized uh, nuggets of wisdom, which is hard because all of these questions are so well thought out and uh, very profound. But let's see. Let's see what we can do this. Uh, how does a filmmaker jump from independent, lower budget films to higher profile pictures? Does it take a good producer, higher budget, great script, shopped around? Anyone has the the brief answer to uh leveling up you gotta make it really good <laughs> and then you get more money and more opportunity the first one has to be a home run yeah i agree it's <laughs> really the only way there you go there you have it you want it you want it the formula now you have it uh any advice you have on balancing full-time jobs and working towards making your first project a reality teach because you have summers off. I would say don't have a job that is there. There are jobs that are adjacent to the job you think you want to do that are actually going to eat your life and not allow you to do the thing you want. So I remember like interviewing to be like a reality TV producer at one point when I was like super hungry. And the woman who interviewed me was like, I am not going to hire you for this because you'll probably be good at it. And this is just going to be what you do. And I would say like, I worked the shitty jobs. I Ray was talking about like going to Cannes and still being poor. Like I got back from Cannes having won an award and I was like shaking apple martinis at the standard on sunset. And I was like, I just won Cannes. I just can't. like in my head, I was like, what the hell is happening? But it kept me hungry. It kept me hungry. I was like, I would write during the day and I would bartend at night. So I do think- there is something is, and then like I did get into TV writing and then that was like an actual career that helped me, but it was still working towards the thing I wanted. I'd say, be careful of the job that seems like it's adjacent to the thing that you want to do, but it's not actually going to allow you to keep pursuing your dream. I, I would agree. I, I probably have bad advice, but I would say quit that job. 
Um, I'm an all all or nothing kind of person when it comes to this kind of thing. Filmmaking is not a fad. It is a lifestyle. Your entire life is towards this thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you, you can't, like you said, can't do something to support yourself, but it should be in line with the thing that you're doing. So like I was, you know, whether it was a doc job or here or there that I can do something in the world of film to try as I was doing that teaching is a great, a great way to do it. But even those jobs require a lot of time. And anytime you care about something, it takes time to put effort into that thing. And if you care about that thing, you're putting time and effort into something else that you care about. That's time away from the thing that you really want to do. So look, it's hard. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really hard. How uncomfortable can you be? And that's essentially it. I eat tuna fish and peanut butter. And if you're like, it doesn't cost that much. I mean, peanut butter is pretty expensive Wait, now. But together, it used to be... right? Together? No, 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 not together. Okay. Like separate, but like, you know, switch off. I switch off. But like, if you're comfortable with nothing, then you'll be okay. Like, how long can you go with the least amount? And that's ultimately it. Like, if you're spending above your budget, you have things that you don't need, like, that's you just have to rough it out for as long as you can until you make that thing. And I mean, that that would be my advice, because otherwise you're splitting your time. If there's somebody else out there that's working 100 percent towards something, yeah. if you're working 70 like that, just just do the math. It's just a math. It's a math game. Can I it's just say with yourself. if you don't have the luxury of a partner who will have your back, because I've had to do this alone, not alone, but with the, my community, um, sometimes you have to have a day job. And I still have my no, day and job. I don't, I don't disagree. No, I, I, don't, I, don't, disagree I don't think that you're saying don't have a day job, right? <laughs> I'm just I'm reiterating the fact that a lot of us, you know, are chipping away at this dream as an individual. And so there's no shame, which is why I love teaching because it holds me accountable. I'm teaching filmmaking. I'm not just teaching anything. It holds me accountable as a filmmaker. I can't talk to my students about breaking Sidfield structure and I'm not holding myself accountable as a filmmaker. So you can find the job that allows you to still be accountable as an artist and still speaks to your craft. I think that's really important in this system as capitalism is killing all of us slowly some of us faster than others. Not so it's slowly. To, right. Not so slowly. It's really important to figure out your unique path if you don't have a partner who's just investing in your dream. And I'm not saying anyone here's partner is investing in their dream, but it's a different path when you're chipping away at it alone. My other part-time Thanks. job, like Sean, is as a mother. And I also had a baby on my short film and a three-year-old on my... Um, on my feature. And I was taking care of that baby at night when I would shoot in a full 18 hour day. Um, and then I saw an interview with Sarah Polly where she had taken a break from, and it's, this is about balance. There's a point to all this about balancing your life and having to make money or having to be a parent. All of it is balance. And she created a set where she had enough time to spend with her kids at the end of the day and built that into the system. And I think sometimes we, do put everything in and ignore everything else in our life and to try to make these movies. But I do think that having, you know, mental health and balance with your family should be built into it. And it was really inspiring to me because it was hella hard to do my first feature on zero budget and then go home and feed my child and be present for her 
and then wake up. I had maybe one or two hours sleep and then I'd wake up the next day and that's just not sustainable, you know, and there's, I'm so inspired to hear from you, Sean, about that. Cause I, I was worried that when I had my kid into you too, I was like, that's it. My career is over. I had the kid and actually it made me a better filmmaker and it made me have sort of that dual thing of you have to, it forces you to balance. It forces you to say, I have this kid and she needs me as much as this crew does. But there, I think that there can be some changes in the way we make movies that you can have a life and, and make your art and have a balance. So it's a little bit tangential, but I just wanted to say that hearing no, no, no. you I, as a mom, really, it was nice to hear because it was, it was friggin' hard. I think it's very important. And I, I, I think because of people like you all, these are changes that are happening and you can see that directors are starting to like really set the rules of what's healthy for them. And I think that is just game changing for everyone coming after us. Uh, okay. Last audience question. How do you balance being political, getting your movie made, but also maintaining creative control? Um, I would say choose your battles. Yeah. Not every hill is your hill to die on and you're going to have to compromise, but just know when it's a fight that you should like go to the mat for, because I think then, then it has meaning. And I do find there are young filmmakers to me that are like, like every, every hill is a hill to die on or every line in their script is a work of art. And it's like, no, there's a lot of smart people out there. Like you can take notes and you can hear other people's ideas and you, you, you know, but, but you know, when it's a compromise that, like I said, with casting, or like I said, like, if you feel in your gut that, that like your, the integrity of your story is going to be compromised. If you, if you make that, you sort of have to really trust that, you know, sense of like your, your inner compass or whatever it is, because I do think you're, you're going to be asked to compromise all the time. Yeah. But like you need to know when the fight is worth having and then and then put everything into those fights. That's beautiful. Uh, okay, so before we leave, when was the last time you saw your first movie? And I realized, Randall, the answer for you may be like a month ago as you were finishing it. But when was the last time you saw your first movie? And what was like the predominant feeling that you experienced when you watched it? Uh, I'll start with Sean, just because you're uh, unmuted. I haven't seen my first movie. Uh, you know, I'm going to say it came out in 2016. I probably in six years. Um, I'm so scared to watch it again <laughs> because I like, you know, it was the first movie. Like, I think, I think it was yeah, good. Yeah. I don't know. I like, but I'm so afraid. And I think I've grown so much as a filmmaker. I was thinking the other day, because I was like, God, if I could get back in the editing room and someone just gave me Tallulah now, like I would cut the shit out of that movie. I would lose a half hour. I would like, like, I'm just such a better editor now than I think I was then. I was, everything was precious. Um, and actually I am friends with Sarah Polly now. And she, I was just talking with her and she was like, I watched Tallulah the other day. And she was like, it's really good. And I'm like, is it? I'm so happy. <laughs> to hear that because like in my mind it's morphed into like a very first movie but like I should watch it again because I think I'm just afraid of how I've grown as a filmmaker and what I might think of it but I but I think I should go back you should 
I think you should. Yeah, I mean, we screened. Text me, text me what you do. We screened at Sundance, and uh, it was a nightmare for me. I just could. It was just. Too, it was so much anxiety, uh, and uh, and we're screening again in Tribeca in a few days, and I, I don't even think I'm going to sit in that theater because it was it was just and I feel like I haven't made another movie since but I but I do feel like I've learned so much from that process and 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 that I've grown that I've grown from from that and and uh and it's gonna just even be harder to watch as I like continue to you know, learn these lessons from the process. Yeah, I'm still navigating people are still discovering Nanny on Amazon Prime. So I'm still getting I am one of those people who's gradually prying myself away from social media altogether, but I do see the value for research and like Twitter and like case study and humanity. It's really interesting to me. So, I mean, I think it's important to treat your film, whether it's a short film or your first feature as a teachable moment. So sitting in the audience, you know, alerting yourself, paying attention to when people laugh, when people look at their phones, when people go to the bathroom for those first few screenings. And then after that, free yourself from those shackles and, you know, like love what you created because like, like this panel is named, every film is a miracle. Literally every film is a miracle. And so move on to the next, but use those teachable moments in these screenings and also prepare yourself for the questions because Nanny garnered a conversation around what is horror that I didn't anticipate. So I, I felt like I, at some point, uh, was defending my choices more than I was learning. And so again, be present, learn, and don't get caught up in the abyss of just defending, defending, defending your choices. You made them. And that's why your film is in the world. When was the last time you saw your movie? I mean, the last screening was that I sat through probably was Toronto last year, Toronto Film Festival last year, whenever that was. I think that was, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. What Almost. is time? Yeah. What is time? Uh, Diane? Oh, I have a cool story for this. Um, I, so my film was released during the pandemic Thanks. in theaters, which was an interesting choice for Sony Pictures. I mean, it was like the day that all the theaters got shut down. But the last time I saw my film was on an airplane and I look over and someone, it was on the airplane and someone was watching my film like two seats down. And I watched my film without any sound with another person watching. And it was like the closest thing I had to, it was such a cool moment. And it just sort of reminded me of those stories that we've all been telling. And holy shit, you know, that, that stupid little movie is playing on this airplane on my way to wherever the hell and this person's watching it and it just felt like a some kind of mini triumph and they were crying they were crying I mean everybody cries at everything on a plane but I was it just something really intimate about watching someone on a plane watch your movie it's just such a surreal experience and very rewarding because it you know it's like what is that crying on the airplane plane phenomenon but it, it was kind of beautiful to see it silent and watch this person react to this thing I made and had no idea that I, who I was of course that's beautiful. Uh, Ray? Uh, I saw it for the first time recently, actually. I, I had just finished uh, shooting the biggest movie in my life. And then I, for whatever reason, was like, I want to be reminded of why I got into this thing. 
Um, so I put it on and, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't beat myself up too much about it. I definitely saw like, Ooh, uh, Ooh, you know, we didn't have this or we didn't have this and, and that kind of stuff, but it was nice to see some old faces, you know, like John David Washington and Anthony Ramos and Shante Adams. And I just was like thinking about the cast and how, how pure, I guess that, that period of time was and, as I think about what I'm going to do next, I, I wanted to be reminded of some sense of that purity. So yeah, it wasn't that wasn't that long ago that I watched it. Well, we are a time. I just want to say thank you so, so much. I know that you're all so busy doing the million things that you're doing. And I know that means a lot to everyone on this, listening to this panel to just get a little window into your directing lives and into your brain. So Thank you so, so very much, Randall, Kiatu, Reynaldo, Diane, Sean. Um, I hope we all get to see each other again soon. Thank you all. This was really therapeutic for me to be amongst you all. So thank you. Thank you, Carlos. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank thank you, Carlos, for giving back to the community uh, like oh. like you do. Uh, it's, it's very it's very generous and, and I admire you for it. Thank you. No, thank you so much. We've gotten such incredible feedback from people watching these panels. And I know for a fact that like all of your stories are going to make a big difference in a lot of filmmakers lives. So thank you. All right. Much Bye. love, brother. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye, y'all. Many thanks once again to Carlos for organizing and moderating that conversation and to Sean, Rinaldo, Nikiatu, Diane, and Randall for participating. If you enjoyed this program, please stay tuned. We will be bringing you more of the Anti-Gravity Academy satellite sessions talks in the coming months. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube, in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for listening.